I also made the case for owning Bitcoin, the quintessence of scarcity premium. Scarcity premium. It's literally the only large tradable asset in the world that has a known fixed maximum supply by its design. The total quantity of Bitcoins cannot exceed 21 million. Bitcoin is the hardest money that has ever been invented. If you don't have my private key, you cannot spend my Bitcoin, period. And this is the power of Bitcoin. It's the first time we figured out how to create true property that you can take possession of with full custodial rights. What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Talking in Bits, where we walk you through Bitcoin bit by bit so we can provide you with the information you need to succeed and persist. Back with episode 66. And I got somebody here who's literally taking a journey across the States. Somebody I've been following from a distance for a little while, just seeing what he's up to. And he awarded us and afforded us the opportunity to come on the show and talk a little bit about that. I got Sid here in the house. How's it going, good sir? Hey, going well. Just got to Columbus, Ohio today. I've done, gosh, maybe almost 6,000 miles on the motorcycle in about six, seven weeks. That's going insane, all over man. the U.S. That's fascinating to me. And uh, we're definitely going to get into, into the details of, of your journey and what you got going on and why you're, you're doing it. But uh, before we go on into that, um, I like to let the listeners know, you know, give my guests a little bit of a spot so they can let the listeners know a little bit about themselves, but also their Bitcoin journey and specifically. I'm very interested in the different stories I hear on how people got into Bitcoin and when they were introduced to it. So if you don't mind, let us know a little bit about yourself and your Bitcoin journey. Yeah. So I guess my Bitcoin journey goes all the way back to uh, taking my first economics classes in high school. And I remember being really interested in economics and human behavior, but the way that economics was taught kind of never sat well with me. I remember the first slide of the first day of the first econ class, they were talking about all individuals are rational and everyone has perfect information and setting up all these rules that everything else that we learned is built on top of. And I later learned if I had gotten an economics degree, which I was thinking about getting everything we learned was built on top of these foundations that everyone knows are not correct. They don't map to reality in any way, but we just have to use them in order to use all these, these you know, functions and calculations that we've come up with to model how the economy works. So that always kind of sat with me as strange. And I first pursued behavioral economics and started to understand that. And that was kind of interesting, but seemed like just some some little rules of thumb and tricks, not you know, a, a full explanation of what was wrong with the way that we do economics. So that kind of sat with me for years and years. I went to school on the East Coast. I originally grew up outside of Chicago. I went to school on the East Coast. I was exposed to more of the finance side, uh, to technology, and I got really deep down the tech rabbit hole. I'd always been into tech, but I got into tech businesses and startups and whatnot. And uh, I was first kind of peaked on actually going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and reading more about all of crypto, we'll say, because I went around that shitcoin horseshoe for sure, uh, yeah. by a book called Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, mm. which was kind of about how uh, tech companies, because they have zero marginal cost of distribution, can amass capital at an exponential rate. And a company like Amazon can suck not just their competitors, but all of retail into their fold. And you know, Google kind of does the same, Facebook does the same in their own areas. And the author talked about this idea of a blockchain as like re-decentralizing all of these things. So that got me really interested in reading more about it. I read the Bitcoin white paper. I kind of started by understanding Bitcoin. And that was sort of late 2016. And I always had this urge to keep reading about it, but I actually almost left the, the entire topic because I thought this is too abstract. Like it's not really connecting to my, my daily life, so to speak. And then 2017 happened. There was this huge hubbub where everyone was talking about Bitcoin. My roommates were asking me about it and I didn't own any at that time. So I bought some, it ran up and then I was like, wow, this is a new paradigm. Thankfully I read uh, a paper, one of the first, I think papers about how Tether is really funding the whole Bitcoin market. And, and I believed it. And I thought, oh boy, this whole thing's going to pop because it's all driven by Tether. Yeah. So I sold everything 
near the top in January 2018, quit my job and started working on a mining farm. And the start of that bear market was when I started to realize that everything else in crypto doesn't really matter, especially watching the ICO bubble disappear and uh, going to a lot of Ethereum conferences during 2018 and just getting a sense that there's more hype and marketing than there is actual things being built here. And then also that experience in mining, just understanding how a mining farm operates and the finances of it and how proof of work works. I realized proof of work is, is key to the entire system. And I started to see Bitcoin less as a technology and, and something where you wanted a team that's constantly engineering it and making it better all the time and improving it. It's not really the right way to look at Bitcoin and to look at a blockchain overall. The innovation is really political. So over 2018 and 2019, I think the final nail in the coffin was going to Bitcoin 2019, the original Bitcoin conference from Bitcoin Magazine, and realizing, oh, this is where I want to be. These are the conversations that are interesting. This is where the alpha is, not at the Ethereum conferences or the other crypto stuff where they're just talking about flashy marketing and nothing is really getting done that's kind of base layer important. I think the, the other protocols were ignoring that nothing on top matters if you don't have a strong base layer and Bitcoiners understood that. So that's when I started to go fully Bitcoin only. Uh, then leaving the country, I've been living abroad for two and a half years. I've been living in Thailand and leaving the country really changed my perspective on financial systems and you know, how the dollar and it works abroad rather than for Americans. And that just put me further and further down the Bitcoin rabbit hole to where I am today, riding a motorcycle across the US, going to Bitcoin meetups. Yeah, that, there's a lot to unpack there. I'm, I'm curious there. Um, is, see, I was reading an article the other day. Uh, I, I think it was probably by Jimmy Song or somebody, but where it was along the lines of like, we take for granted nowadays, you know, how much information is out there and how much, you know, we know that Bitcoin is hard money. Uh, so coming from an economics background that you came from um, around 2016, 2017, when you, when you started to really buy into it, was the, same, was the sentiment the same uh, among the community? Was, did everybody know that this was hard money uh, and that it would be one of those you know, political staples like you just said? Or was it just more like only the real cypherpunks understood that logic? Yeah, it, I mean, I guess it depends on the circles that you're in. And I definitely wasn't in the hard money cypherpunk circles until like 2019. I certainly saw it on Twitter, but I don't think I understood it. I remember the first time I saw the Bitcoin standard and I bought it and ended up reading it because everyone was talking about it. I just saw so much mention of it. But when I saw that, the Bitcoin standard, I was like, how is this going to be a reserve currency? That just right. doesn't make any sense to me because I was looking at it in this like Crypto is this thing within the larger economy that's blowing up with all these little decentralization projects. I didn't understand that it cuts a lot deeper than that. Like Bitcoin goes, goes a lot deeper than some tech project. So at first I kind of shied away from that stuff and I, I just didn't understand it. And it was through Bitcoin that then I started to understand Austrian economics and realized that there's a whole like litany and history behind hard money and yeah. thinkers going back hundreds of years who have talked about this. Um, also, there's a YouTube series, Hidden Secrets of Money by a gold bug named Michael Maloney. That really got me interested in the economic side. And then I started to see, oh, this is attacking a much bigger problem than you know, decentralizing some tech thing or Facebook or whatever. Yeah, no, that's once again, I, I, I do agree with the, uh, you know, with Jimmy Song's statement there, what you just said, which is like kind of eventually came. I think safety and the Bitcoin standard was also my introduction into understanding Austrian economics. Um, and I still don't think I get it. I think I just have a good hunch <laughs> of where this is going. Um, but I came in in that 2017, 2018 area and it was just uh, a buddy of mine who was a shit corner. Uh, sorry to say he probably watches the show. Probably still shit corning to this day, but <laughs> he basically was just like, hey, you got to like, you know, if you want to invest, you really got to get into the, you know, this Ethereum stuff. Um, I think he got me into Ripple, uh, into XRP. Uh, um, and then he was like, and this Bitcoin thing, this Bitcoin thing is really cool. They, it has the highest blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. So I got in there and I wasn't savvy enough to understand what I had possession of. So I was definitely sitting on an exchange. And then when it went to bottom and it started dunking, I just got scared shitless and I cashed out. 
And then I was like, I'm out of here. I don't even want to deal with this stuff. I hate this investing stuff because I'm one of those guys that's like a cash. I used to be like a cash only guy. I don't really give a shit about all that. And then, you know, stuff started coming around late 2019, 2020. Then, you know, Bitcoin standard was a little bit later in that year. And then here I am now. Um, but I don't think that the new, you know, the, if you want to call them the newbies or whatever, or the class of 2021, if you want to call them that, I really don't. I think they take for granted all the resources that they have out there. I think they take advantage of the safeties of the world, all the podcasts, the Martys of the world, what we got going on here, because it sounds like not only from your story, but from others I've spoken to, there just wasn't that much information out there on Bitcoin earlier on. Um, and, and that's always fascinating to me. Um, can we talk about the mining? Interested about the mining. I didn't know that you had a little bit of history of mining there. How did that go? Yeah. Sorry, repeat the question. How did that the mining. go? You said you were into mining and you started a mining farm. How did that go? Yeah. So... I actually LARPed through the whole thing. We never set up the mining farm, <laughs> gotcha. uh, but I spent maybe six or nine months working with uh, someone that I just met through a mentor of mine. I said, I, I want to quit my job and work on something in this Bitcoin crypto space. And so she was like, I know one of my friends is working on some mining thing if you want to get introduced. So I had coffee with him. Ends up that we went to the same uh, university. So he was like, dude, I will hire you for, I don't know what you paid me, like 25 bucks an hour to run financial models and help me with a pitch deck to try and raise money to create a mining farm. So I got into Excel. I learned how to financial model. I went to my banker friends and had them help me like put together an Excel model and, and learned a lot about the finances that go behind it and yeah. how capital intensive it is, uh, how kind of businesses have to plan and think about years in the future, how your cash is going to grow or shrink or whatever. So that was something I'd just never been, just even the business side, I'd never really been exposed to, even though I went to the university with the best business school in the, probably in the world. Yeah. I didn't learn like that kind of cash management on the ground type of stuff. So I was learning it on this theoretical mining farm and trying to put together the pieces and learning a lot about mining, cooling, the machines, how the hardware comes in, the lead times you need. Like I remember we were looking at a facility that we needed to upgrade and a transformer took like 18 to 24 months. And nice. we're like, well, that introduces way too much uncertainty because we have no idea where the Bitcoin price or hash rate or anything is going to be in 18 to 24 months. We need something that's much more immediate if we're going to make a model that has any relation to reality because we just can't predict that far out. So. I learned a lot about like the importance of proof of work and how all these pieces move together to make a mining farm. And we, we were pretty close to setting up a farm in upstate New York with about three megawatts of power. I think they had one and a half online already. And our problem was basically finding investors that wanted to plop down the capital for that because we were trying to do an equity raise. They would have had to just come in and give us cash and the way we were pitching it and the way that, that I ended up thinking about it is this is a super long-term play on Bitcoin with a lot of extra risk. So if you're really long-term bullish on it, which now I am, but in 2018, I wasn't so sure. I wasn't like down the sound money rabbit hole to understand that this will you know, eat up every financial market. So it was hard for us to go after investors and say, yeah, you could just go to Coinbase right now and buy $5 million of Bitcoin. And that could be that. Or you could give us two random guys that $5 million, and maybe in 10 years, we will have outperformed that. And now looking back, we would have set up in the bottom of the bear market. It would have been a perfect time to do it. But I think we made the mistake of shooting too big for one. We didn't start with just 10 miners and grow from there. Like, like um, what is it? Windstone did. Yeah. But uh, I think there was, there was that mistake and then um, lost my train of thought. Yeah, it seems like everything but, is yeah. easier in retrospect, right? Like when you look yeah. back, it's always one of those like, oh, I should have done that. But yeah, it should yeah, have started yeah. smaller. I think that was the biggest thing is if we had started smaller, then we could have just grown slowly and learned a lot more about the business. But we wanted to set up three megawatts right away. We needed a lot of money to do that. And it was just a difficult pitch to try and get someone to throw down that much money especially yeah. as the Bitcoin price is going down. 
Yeah, and it kind of just keeps circling around that same thing of how people take it for granted now. I bet you everybody now is foaming at the mouth to try to get part of a, a, a mining farm. And back yep. then, you guys were just trying to prove to people that this is actually something worth doing, uh, mm-hmm. which is super interesting. All right, but before we get uh, on, in, into this journey across the States, um, I did hear you say that you lived abroad in Thailand, and I'm always fascinated by, by that. Is there any type of experiences you want to share, lessons that you learned at your time abroad? Yeah, I mean, Thailand is an incredible place. I'm going to be going back there. Like that, That's my home now. Um, nice. There was such a huge culture shift day to day that is so hard to explain to people. I think it took me a while to just feel it out by being there, but I always kind of grew up thinking there's this like go, go, go attitude in America. I mean, I lived in New York City for three years. It was constantly all around you. Everyone's hustling. My school was very much like that. People were very pre-professional, wanted to get the good jobs, work long hours. And that was never really me. Like I, I will work really long hours for things that I'm passionate about, but sure. I'm not going to do that in a suit, in a tall office building. That's just not my personality. And that seems like, you know, what America and our education system kind of funnels everyone into. And when I got to Thailand, that's not the attitude in the entire country. The entire country is much more, I would say overall, obviously this is stereotyping, but a slower pace of life. Yeah. Much more relaxed. People are less concerned about getting ahead. Obviously, there are people who are concerned about getting ahead and very ambitious, but it's kind of this balance where there is ambition. There are people starting businesses, but it's not at the mercy of family and health and enjoyment of life. And that attitude kind of permeates through everything in that country. And that, at least to me, coming from America, has been so refreshing so nice. I, I just haven't wanted to leave because I feel like I'm very productive, but I'm not grinding myself into a pulp like I was in America, surrounded by people always talking about raising big rounds and getting a big paycheck and climbing this, this corporate ladder. I kind of got off that ladder and now I have no interest in getting back on it. That sounds magical. Now, I don't know what type, uh, you know, I'm not trained in, in, in the currency that they're using over there, but how much of that has to do with just the fiat dollar, in your opinion? Is it here in the States because of the fiat dollar and over there is a little bit less or? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I have a hard time saying that it is just because the fiat dollar is, is everywhere. You know, yeah. the bot, I'm pretty sure the bot targets a dollar range because it always is kind of within 30 to 34 to the dollar. So the dollar is everywhere, whether you're using it day to day or not. Um, I do have some theories about like why Thailand is the way that it is versus America. Like America's, you know, pioneering. We came in and conquered all this land. And it's always about growth, growth, growth. And Thailand, I was reading a little bit of history about Thailand and just the land in that area is so fertile that people haven't had to like struggle to farm and grow food. So it's been a laid back place for thousands of years. I think it's like the point of saying that, that they've been able to grow things and live in a self-sustained manner. So they haven't had to go out and fight through winters and whatnot to expand territory. It's just a different mode of living. And there's actually hill tribes in different parts of Thailand that don't even call themselves Thai, which is super interesting to me. And I, Coming from America, never really understood this because everyone from America is an immigrant and came there. Um, but these tribes have very unique identities and cultures that stretch back thousands of years. So hmm. I went and visited one tribe. They all spoke perfect English. Some of their relatives are working in Bangkok or major cities in Asia, and they're sending money back to their families that live in these hill tribes. And uh, they were, they're called the Mun Hill Tribe. And they said that they used to have their own land between uh, Myanmar and Thailand. But after they lost a war with what used to be called Burma or Myanmar, mm-hmm. uh, they don't have that land anymore. So I asked, like, when was that war? And I thought, you know, this is 1940s or 50s, or like World War II. He said, 
it was 600 years ago. Whoa. And they still <laughs> have their same Mun cultural identity, even though they don't have land. Just wow. because they live, I think part of it has to do with they live in these very remote areas where these kingdoms basically had difficulty assimilating them into the kingdom. And the same is true in Northern Thailand. There's a bunch of hill tribes that live separate from Thai society and mainstream society. And they have their own ways of life that are thousands of years old because they grow their own food and they're completely self-sufficient and they don't need, you know, Thai uh, kings to come bring them things or to provide them, you know, anything because they're perfectly happy on their own. So I think that those kind of cultures are so fascinating to me because they're like the example of self-sovereign. They're living it. Yeah. And they've been living it for thousands of years. Yeah, as you're saying, I'm thinking like they build their own citadels and they have absolute low time preference. I mean, they're just, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, just being sovereign. That is incredible. Wow. Thanks for d- diving into that. I didn't, I didn't have any versing in, in Thai history or anything like that or these little tribes that are, that are there. That's, that's just incredible. Um, all right. We can finally get into now your journey across the U.S. Uh, why did you decide to even, you know, take upon this journey to go from state to state? And to do this type of thing. Well, you could explain to the listeners what journey you are taking and then why did you go on that journey? Yeah, so I am riding a motorcycle all across the U.S. visiting Bitcoin meetups. My goal is to go to at least 21 meetups. I'm going to smash through that. But uh, it kind of originated because of a couple things. I've been out of the country for two and a half years, like I said, because of COVID, I never came back. So I wanted to come back and just see America again. Uh, I had done a road trip when I was about 20 years old and loved that experience of being on the road, but I did it in a truck. And since I moved to Thailand, I ride a motorcycle every day. And I fell in love with riding motorcycles. So I thought, why not do it on an American motorcycle and ride all around America and go to these meetups that I've seen from Twitter kind of blow up over the last two years, really. I mean, there were Bitcoin meetups way before that, but seeing the local meetup scene explode, especially in these like kind of someone referred to them as second tier cities, or I talked to someone in Ohio that said flyover states. It's these states where we're seeing like the most passion for Bitcoin meetups, which is really cool. So I thought, why don't I link these together and go to different meetups all over the country, meet people and see the country? Because I haven't really traveled all that much within the US. I've just flown to different cities, which are kind of all the same once you go to the downtown area. Like yeah. they have their local flavors, but it's a big city and you know, similar types of people. So what if I see the country from state highways on a motorcycle? It'll be a much different experience than just flying in between. Yeah, that's that that does sound awesome. And I'm one of those guys that's definitely guilty of just flying into cities and acting like I'm traveling, but all I'm doing is just going from city to city. Um, so like, do you, ha- do you have your timeline already sketched out? So where did you start? Where do you think this is going to end? Like I, a little bit about the timeline that, that you got laid out here. Yeah, so I started at Bitcoin 2022 in Miami. Okay. So I kicked off the tour. And then from there, in five short days, I rode to Dallas, went to Dallas, Austin, Houston for a couple of weeks. And then I crossed over the South, went to Nashville, uh, a couple cities in uh, the Carolinas, went to Huntsville, Alabama. And now I'm going up through to the Midwest. So I'm going to do Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, uh, up to Minnesota, and then over to the Rockies. So I'll go to Sioux Falls and, and Kansas City on the way, and then go to Denver, and then down from Denver through to the Southwest, and then out to LA, which is where I'll probably end the trip. So um, as you can see on the hat, Swan Bitcoin is like the main sponsor for the ride. I raised some money and got some companies involved just to help pay for the ride, but also to make this a bigger event and a bigger thing. So Swan's going to be producing a docu-series out of footage and interviews I'm doing on the trip. And then we're going to plan like an end of tour event in LA where a lot of Swan employees are. Um, And then also Bitcoin Magazine's helping me out a bunch. Unchained Capital helped me out a bunch, especially in Texas. And uh, Upstream Data is paying for a bit of gas, of course, because it's upstream. So (laughs) yeah, that's kind of the, the ride route. And the whole way I'm going to these meetups, I'm interviewing the meetup organizers, And I'm especially interested in talking to people who 
came into Bitcoin in 2020 or 2021, basically after 2017, really, because I think after 2017, now everyone knows the word Bitcoin. They know what Bitcoin is. They can say it's a peer-to-peer -peer currency, but they probably don't know much more than that. And they're probably saddled with all these assumptions from what you read in major newspapers or see on NBC, which is really short-sighted analysis and often like the opposite of how Bitcoin actually works. So I'm really interested in how people recently took experiences in their lives to break through that noise and realize, oh, this is something that could be really valuable to me because I'm hoping that telling those stories through platforms like Bitcoin Magazine and Swan will help more people wake up to the fact that Bitcoin can provide a ton of value in their lives as well. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I'm looking forward to seeing the end result of that. Um, I didn't even know that you were partaking in interviewing during this process too, mm -hmm. uh, which is really, really dope. Now, how much of it is, how much of the trip is like on the fly versus planned? Meaning that like, I would imagine you need to know where you're staying. You need to know, you know, have reservations if that's what it takes and things like that. If you were to put, you know, a percentage on it, how much of it is off the whim and, and just relying on plebs and relying on on good contributions and how much of that is actually you already know and it's, it's kind of set in stone. Yeah, so it kind of depends on what you're talking about. The meetups yep. are all planned pretty far in advance. I planned, I kind of planning it in thirds. So I planned the first third before I even left and I knew like where I was going to be for the next six weeks and what meetups I was going to go to. And then I added a lot in there, especially like when I was in Texas, it was just around. So I would hear about a meetup and I would go to it. So that kind of added some things last minute. And I try to keep a lot of, time open to add stuff. The second leg of the trip, there's a lot more riding because like Texas, I was staying in that area and that city for a couple of days. In the Midwest, I'll be in a city for two, three days. I'll spend a little bit longer in Chicago, but that's kind of the longest stretch. So meetups are all planned like pretty far ahead of time, maybe four to six weeks. And all the meetup organizers are like super open to this. I was kind of worried that I would have to line up official meetup dates with my trip and whatnot. And that would make it really difficult. But I've just been reaching out to meetup organizers and saying, Hey, I'm going to be in your city for this night or these two nights. And pretty much everyone has scheduled something one off and people have shown up. So that's been really cool okay. to see as far as everything else, like what I'm going to see, where I'm going to stay when I'm riding in between, like the last four days was getting from Durham, North Carolina to, uh, to Columbus, Ohio. I didn't plan any of that until really the morning of or the night of. Nice. I just figure out like, okay, where is there a campground where I can camp or a, a hotel I can crash in? And I plan all that stuff last minute. Like a lot of hotels, I don't even make reservations. I just rock up and say, do you have any open rooms and figure it out day to day. And, and that's been really nice. Like the last couple of days, taking it easy. I've, I just posted a thread actually on Twitter about like my day in Mount Airy, North Carolina, I knew it's where Andy Griffith from the Andy Griffith show is from. So I was going to go to the museum and stuff, but I ended up getting a haircut there and going on a ride with some people who had just moved there from Long Island and nice. having this like wild adventurous day that I did not wake up thinking I would have. So it's really cool. Yeah. The spontaneous of it. Like I said, I'm such a scripted person that every time I hear somebody as spontaneous as, as you, uh, it's like, ah, oh, I need to do that. I need to experience that. Every now and then, that's super cool, man. Um, the the interviews that you that you have going on that you've been documenting is that more like you need to have a camera crew around or a camera team, or is it just a microphone and you post up, or how do the, how are those yeah. interviews taking place? So it's just me, which is yeah. difficult because I have no experience in this stuff. So <laughs> I've got two GoPros that I also strap to the bike for different shots and yeah. a cell phone, and that's pretty much what I'm capturing everything with. Yeah. And then I've got some mic equipment and whatnot that I'm still fumbling with and figuring out how to, to use most effectively. But yeah, pretty much every interview is just some wireless mics and the GoPro set up on a tripod and see how it goes. So it's kind of vlog style. Like uh, I'm not a very good videographer, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, I'm more interested in the content. Like I, I'm not too interested in making this look really polished. I just yeah. want to talk to people and get the, content out there and, and, you know, hear voices from all over the U.S. Yeah, I think you, you, you're, you're on the right. I think the, that recipe is, is much more of a successful recipe than, you know, the 4K video and what we got going on here because 
And I think people feel that more, right? Like, I think they feel like they're a part of it. They're on the journey with you. They're on the ride with you. As opposed to like, this is like, oh, he staged that. Oh, this is set up. Mm. These lights are all set up really cool. And although the eye likes to see the visually appealing stuff, I still think the human instinct always relates to the vlogging aspect, you know, the the shaky camera and, and all this stuff. So I, I you know, I, spontaneously, <laughs> I think you're you're literally bingo. And, and once again, can't wait to see how it all comes together. Um, are you waiting to the very end to actually release all the content or are you releasing in spurts and I'm just missing it? Or how's that release schedule coming? Yeah, so nothing has been released yet. Uh, it's being worked on at Swan and they have a lot of shows that they're working on. So they're just trying to balance this against everything else. But in the meantime, I'm producing content, taking B-roll shots and things that I'm doing and whatnot and sharing that all with them. So we're in constant communication about what an episode might look like, but that's going to get produced by Swan. They're going to figure out like, how do we stitch these things together to, to make a, a show about the trip basically. Yeah. And shout out to Swan. Uh, we had um, one of the, I think episode three, believe it or not, uh, Jan came on the show and um, you know, big corners being big corners, which I'm sure, you know, just very helpful, very friendly. And on episode three of this baby of a podcast that it was, Jan said, hell yeah, I'll, I'll jump on there and talk some Bitcoin with y'all. So since then, um, you know, yeah, huge respects for Swan and what they got going on, Corey and guys and, and their media team, for sure. They're always pushing out uh, really good content there. Um, I, I want to get into, you know, the Bitcoin community, because I, I think, you know, not only are you being exposed to different arenas uh, in different states, different cities, different types of Bitcoiners, but the, the selflessness of Bitcoiners is, is something that has play, played a big part, especially since being a part of Unchained Capital and going down to Austin, um, I, I've seen in full blast. Uh, but, you know, before I get into that and, and walk away a little bit from the journey, um, what's the best thing, in your opinion, that you've seen or, uh, or have experienced on the road, maybe even versus the worst thing? Hmm. That's a good question. <clears throat> I mean, there's so many, like, categories of things that have been <laughs> good on this trip. I mean, one of the things I've been really surprised and, and like delighted by is how friendly people have been at different meetups, especially with like staying in town. So I thought about this before, especially when I was figuring out like how much is this going to cost? Like, where am I going to stay? You know? So I got a tent so that I can camp and campgrounds and whatnot. And obviously hotels. And then I also thought when I'm in a city where I have a friend, I can stay with that friend, which I have stayed with friends a few points along the trip. But I've also had a lot of Bitcoiners just say, hey, I've never met you before, but you can crash in my guest room. <laughs> Actually, someone uh, offered to let me stay with their dad in Austin. And I did it. And I was like, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to turn out, you know, but it was amazing. It was really fun. Like, Great place to stay. Dad was really cool. We hung out a lot while I was there. He's comes from a finance background. His entire career is in finance, but he doesn't really understand Bitcoin. His son works in Bitcoin. So we talked about it a little bit and I was working on the orange billing a little bit. So that has been like really, really fun because I'm getting to spend a lot more time with Bitcoiners than I thought and a lot more like whatever you want to call it, like off, off camera time or whatever, not hanging out with a group at a bar or doing an interview, but just like chilling in their home. So it's yeah. a lot different vibe. So that has been really cool. Like really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, worst things, probably I underestimated the fatigue of riding a motorcycle every day for day, days and days in a row. It really tires you out. Like when I got to Austin, I had already been in Dallas for four or five days. Uh, but I had done that five day stretch before that on the interstate. And I was so brain dead. I was having dinner with Texas Slim the day that I got to Austin. It was like a three hour ride from Dallas to Austin. And twice during that dinner, I just completely lost my train of thought. Like I did earlier in this podcast, because I rode like two hours today. And that was all I wrote, but I'm still yeah. tired from it. And I lost my train of thought twice and Slim just looked at me and he's like, man, cause you're riding a motorcycle. Like it takes so much energy to f st 
stay focused when you have that much on the line. And it is very different from a car. I've done car road trips and I can do 10, 12, 14 hours in a car. No problem. It's not bad, but three, four hours on a motorcycle. And I'm like, God, I got to pass out. It's exhausting to ride that long. So I, I definitely underestimated that part. That said, like when I get good roads, it is so much more fun than a car. Yeah. I'm having a blast when I get into mountain passes and whatnot. It's, it's a great time. So I, I don't regret taking a motorcycle, but if I did this again on a motorcycle, I'm going to plan the, the route in a lot more detail with a lot shorter you know, stints every day. Yeah, well, now that you say that, it just got me thinking of that. Um, I'm probably going to butcher it, so I'll paraphrase it. But that quote that says, um, most of the problems are the, the result of man not being able to be by themselves for too much, you know, stretch of, uh, you know, whatever. I butchered it. But so how do you keep yourself in that, in that situation? Because I didn't think about it. On a motorcycle, like, how do you keep yourself sane just basically being you by yourself in your own head? I mean, do you, like, listen to audio or do you just kind of just think to yourself? Uh, how do you kill the time? I guess is the best question I guess. Yeah, I'm almost always listening to something. So okay. I found like rock music and country music actually, which I didn't really listen to very much. Hits different when you're riding on a Harley, especially through mountain passes. So I've been listening <laughs> to that a lot in the background and I just put music on and yeah, I let my mind wander. I mean, I've been riding motorcycles for a couple of years now, like every day. And I love just going out into the mountains and riding and thinking about life. I bought a patch at a Harley dealer that says, sometimes you need a twisted road to straighten out your mind. Mm. And that is so true for me. If I'm really like struggling with something and I get on a motorcycle for an hour or two, when I get off, I've solved it somehow. And usually I don't even know how, but it's gone. So it is kind of, it fixes things for me in a lot of ways. I find it a really like therapeutic activity. A lot of times when I'm on the highway, I'll listen to podcasts because that's a lot more than my mind is going and I'm thinking about what they're saying and you know, debating in my head or whatever. And I don't want to be doing that when I'm like carving through a mountain, it's just too much. But if yeah. I'm just sitting on the interstate, then, you know, I'll listen to podcasts, which gives me a lot of time to pump through stuff. Soak up all the good info. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, while you were in Austin, um, and I don't know much about his journey, did you happen to talk to Buck from Unchained Capital? Uh, he's one of the uh, developers up there. Yeah. I got yeah. introduced to him, but I didn't, didn't really speak to him too much. Oh, okay. I, I've, I don't know much about the journey itself. I actually got to talk to him and, and get a little more on it. But I do know he has a, um, one of his biggest adventures was uh, riding a motorcycle across China and writing a book about it. Whoa. So I, yeah, I figured that that would be something you guys would, would definitely Wish collect. I had known that. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to him about it. Damn. Yeah, I, I don't know much about it, but he definitely wrote a book about the experience. And um, every time I see him, he has his, you know, his motorcycle gear. He's always riding his bike. So I thought you guys would hit off with that one. But Maybe next time. Yeah. Yeah. He did, now, now I remember he did mention having a motorcycle and we were thinking about going on a ride, but I think he just had a kid. So he yeah. doesn't really have too much time to go on rides with me. But Definitely. But pick his brain about the China thing because I'm sure it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I've even been thinking about picking up the book, but I know, I know him personally. So maybe I could get this sneak peek info. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah, is going to be random here. Um, I, I, <laughs> I saw you cook a flat iron steak in your tailpipe, man. <laughs> and you know what well, i'm not you know first of all i don't ride bikes and i'm you know not a huge steak eater but i am getting into that thanks to bitcoin uh run me through that man what made you think hey i need to do this have you done it before is that one of those things or it's fascinating by the way but yeah so this is another thing that just came out of nowhere on this trip <laughs> so it originated with uh hanging out with texas slim a lot in austin right before the beef initiative conference yep And, you know, he was talking about food systems and how processed all of our food is. And I asked him like, well, when you're traveling, how do you avoid processed food? Because he's been traveling a lot lately. And he said, well, I'll bring a hot plate and a skillet and beef and I'll throw it in the fridge wherever I'm staying. And then I'll get the hot plate set up and everything. And I can cook myself a steak without, you know, any processed stuff and get my own meat. And I thought, well, you know, I could bring a cast iron and a hot plate, but that adds a lot of junk to my setup and my bags are already chock full. So that's kind of difficult. And I was talking to uh, the chef at the Beef Initiative and he said, well, you've got a motorcycle. You don't need any kit. You can cook on the engine, which, duh, it's hot as hell. So I thought, huh, that is weird. And he said, look it up. It's 
called manifold cooking. So I Googled it. Lo and behold, there are books like cookbooks written on manifold cooking <laughs> and they don't even put like the time that you should cook the thing for. It's yeah. the number of miles on the highway that oh, you should shit. drive before it'll be done. So he was like, yeah, just put a piece of beef in some foil and put it on top of your engine, which if you have a car engine is much easier because the exhaust manifold is like usually flat and a couple sure. cylinders. But on the bike, obviously, I have these two pipes that come out like that and go down and out the back. So I found this thing called a muff pot that clips <laughs> on to the side of the exhaust. So I just bought that thing on Amazon, next day shipping, got it the next day and clipped it on. The first steak was a New York strip. Didn't come out all that well. I think I cooked it for about two hours and it didn't look pretty, but it tasted all right. But then when I was riding in Tennessee, I saw this sign said JNL meat market in the middle of nowhere in Tennessee. So I slammed on the brakes and turned around. And I was like, let's see if they sell beef. Cause that looks like a local rancher store. Sure enough, it was a local rancher from that town and in, in Tennessee. And they sold me a little piece of, I think it was a flat iron. You said it, a flat iron steak. Some yeah. cut they said is not common, but like a butcher will be able to give it to you. And I threw that in my box for one and a half hours on one side, one and a half on the other. That was one of the best steaks I've had in my life. And all I just put like a seasoning mix on both sides and threw it in the box. Super simple, but it was juicy, tender, incredible piece of meat. And it kind of cooked like a sous vide. So yeah. it was a constant pink all the way through and then brown. Mm. It wasn't like seared on the outside, but it was brown on the outsides and then constant pink on the inside. When I sat down, I, I ate it in the hotel lobby in Nashville. Yeah. And I popped open the box and there was this little dog sleeping at the table next to me. And the dog was fast asleep. As soon as I opened that foil, it poked its head up and stared at me the entire time. <laughs> I ate you that, that steak good. sniffing in the air. Like, <laughs> dog wanted it too. That's freaking fascinating. Yeah, I saw I saw you post that and I was like, that is so fucking cool. But yeah, I knew you were doing that and I didn't know. I thought you had a history of it. It seemed like you were a pro at it. Yeah, never heard of it before. I'm I'm trying it as I go. Yeah, it's super cool, man. Um, I want I got a few more questions here for you. We're wrapping up here on time. But uh back to the Bitcoin community. I just want your opinion since you've been around. Um, I always like to um give the listeners a sneak peek when I can um of what it's like to be at these events or what it is like to be around Bitcoiners because, you know, um, a lot of the people are either too you know, nervous or scared to go to or just don't have the opportunity to. So, um, and just your experiences, you know, what makes Bitcoiners um, as selfless as they are or as good people as they are? Yeah, this is such a hard thing for me. It is, yeah. To pin down um, because I meet people from all different backgrounds that come to these meetups with, a lot, a lot more diverse views, I think, than you see on Twitter. Yeah. And a lot of people, you know, aren't even on Twitter, don't even know what's going on in like the Bitcoiner world. And I use Twitter because that is like, I think where most of this activity is happening, most of the sure. chatter around Bitcoin or Bitcoin culture or whatever. Yeah. But mostly they're normal people from all different walks of life um, that, I don't know, are just open to sitting down and having a rational conversation about what's going on in the world and not get into hysterics or um, are not quick to like blame. I think that's, that's an important part of Bitcoin for me is like not quick to blame people's intentions, but the system that we've created and how the systems incentives drive people to do things. Mm. And that's been like one of the, coolest things about going down the Bitcoin rabbit hole is seeing that a lot of problems in the world don't come from people being bad or people being good, but from a system that is designed in a bad way that drives people to do bad things, that has incentives for people to cheat, lie, whatever. And that if we just change that system, suddenly a lot of that behavior just doesn't make sense to do anymore. Um, and I think that's a, a common attitude that I've seen at meetups. Yeah, no, that's well said there. Um, yeah, super supportive um, of everything that I've done and, and when it comes to Bitcoin. And just like you said, I, I'm surprised that the Bitcoin celebrities, right, I like to use that in quotations, that I've met 
that like you said are just normal people and and you know like the the yan example that i gave you know earlier just to be able to jump on a random podcast that is not doing anything it's just been born um with his time which is really highly valuable i've been able to uh talk to Gigi uh, a, a few times which is also like Gigi's like magical and his time is i'm sure very expensive and he just he's he's willing to come back on uh in a few weeks here and he's been on the show before nick batia I, I mean i could go down the list um going there and meeting you know parker lewis's of the world and these are people that like I mean, I get the normal Bitcoiners because they're like me. They're just trying to like figure this out and figure out this world and all that. But those guys that are what I consider an upper echelon that have contributed so much to Bitcoin, man, you, be, you meet those people in person and they're just willing to talk to you and just hang out with you just like anybody else. And I don't think I've seen that in any other uh, space, especially any space that's tied to the fiat spigot. Right. Anything mm-hmm. that's close to that, whether it's nutrition, whether it's whatever, if it's close to the fiat spigot, it's... It's a lot of charlatans is what I've seen in the past and people yeah. trying to take advantage. So, um, yeah, man. No, well said there. Um, if I were to have one last question for you, and it's just because, you know, I want to know where people's interests are. What has you excited in Bitcoin and, you know, either coming up or things that you follow? Yeah, so um, lightning is one thing that I regrettably have been super behind on understanding and like the payments use case. And I've been trying to do that a little bit more on this ride. Um, I tried to like, I set up a lightning node, but I didn't do it very well, I think in 2019. And there weren't very many resources that I could understand. And I think that's changed a lot now. It seems like there's a huge community, a lot of resources to understand how it works. But I think I kind of underappreciated the payments case. When I first got into Bitcoin, I thought it was a payments network. Then I realized it's money and I sort of ignored the payment side and just stack sats and I'm never going to spend them. Mm-hmm. But on this trip, I've realized that payments are a really good way to open the conversation with people who are not into Bitcoin. Because you can't really, unless someone comes to a meetup and they're asking you questions about it, or someone at a bar is asking you questions about Bitcoin and they're curious, then you can go down the rabbit hole. But you can't really start with, oh, well, I need to explain fiat money to you and whatnot. Like people yeah. just check out. So payments is a really good way to get people kind of interested and, and open to the idea of, oh, I might want to accept this and use it and whatnot. And on this trip, there's been a lot more opportunities to do that than to sit down and you know, orange people, people, orange pill people on the fiat money system and everything. So I'm really interested in getting more into understanding the payments use cases for Bitcoin and all the developments in that space, like at the Bitcoin conference with Jack Mellers announcing that all these companies are going to start accepting lightning payments. Like I want to understand how that works. And so I can use it in front of my friends and whatnot and open that conversation and get them to start asking more interesting questions about what Bitcoin is. Yeah, no, I'm with you on lightning hundred percent. Um, set up a node 2020 used it only for podcasting 2.0 when I heard Adam Curry first talk about it. Um, and just what it opens up for creators. Um, you know, this podcast is value for value. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, being able to actually now walk into places and, you know, uh, be able to use not only my sovereign stack, but maybe, you know, my KYC stack, if I go through cash app and have that instant settlement, um, I think we've beat on that dead horse over and over in this episode, but you're absolutely right. Even in 2020, um, not many people that were, you know, normies were actually talking about, you know, information, right? There was no resources out there for me. I was kind of just out there on a whim and just had this node and had no idea what to do with it. And here we are in 2022. And yeah, this community's built around it. Um, this LSPs now to provide liquidity, um, you know, Mahler's announcement and et cetera, et cetera. So lightning is definitely extremely fascinating, man. I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Sid, just to wrap up here, man, please let the listeners know where they can follow you, where they can support you, where they can see the journey, uh, and anywhere else you want to send them. Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Captain Sid, S I D D H, the letter H at the end. Um, you can find pretty much everywhere, everything there. If you want to donate to the tour, I'm accepting Lightning and Bitcoin payments through TallyCoin. If you go to Linktree, it's Linktree, but with a dot before the two E's slash Bitcoin tour. There's a bunch of links related to the tour. And eventually I'll have the YouTube up there for Swan Signal, Swan's YouTube channel when they start putting out the docuseries and whatnot. So that's kind of like the homepage for the the tour. And you can find 
the Telegram group, my Twitter donation page, all of that on the on the link tree. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely, guys, listeners, please check it out, donate, follow. It's just a, a fascinating trip across the state, something that most of us wish we can do and can't do. Sid, I appreciate you for your time, man. I appreciate you for taking on this type of journey. And uh, I can't wait to see what the end result here is and, and to see all that content because highlighting Bitcoiners as you're doing it is, is a feat. And I think you're doing a fantastic job, man. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Appreciate you bringing me on. Yeah, absolutely. Friend of the show. Hopefully this won't be the last time. Maybe we can talk when you wrap up the tour, have you back on the show and we, we could talk about a wrap up. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks, man. Awesome. Yeah, you're very welcome. Guys, always stream us some sets. You can check us out on Fountain. That's probably the easiest and best way to do it. You can check us out on Breeze app. That's also another really cool, popular platform or app, whichever way you want to think about it, that allows you to stream us everything down from a cent to 5 to $10, whatever you think the value is worth here. That's how we're able to keep this show ad-free. That's how we're able to keep the lights on here. And 5% of that actually goes to open sets. I actually forgot. Sid, 5%, your split, man. Where do you, where, where do you want it to go? Yeah, let's send it to open sets. Let's send it to open sats. Open sats is the best. It actually makes, you know, uh, free and open source software developers be able to give us this uh, privacy fighting, uh, you know, technology here that keeps us sovereign. So 10% of this episode is going to go to open sats. So stream us some sats and donate there. If you're not, you know, if you want the video, Bitcoin TV, Bitcoin TV, Bitcoin TV. We, we want to get off those legacy platforms and we want to be able to embrace uh, Bitcoin friendly uh, content and places where we won't be censored. However, if you haven't caught up yet and you're still on those legacy platforms, you can definitely check us out on Spotify, Apple, all those good places. You can check us out on YouTube as well. All the feedback and all the love is super helpful. So that wraps up episode 66. I appreciate y'all as always. Sid, appreciate you. Good, sir. Thank Catch you. Catch y'all next time. Later. Cool.